Please stand now for the reading of God's word. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. I invite you to turn in your own scriptures, or it'll also be uh, up on the screen. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. If you've been with us, you know that we have been walking our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we come to the section that most people call that part about anchor. <laughs> and, and true, there is a lot about anger in this, in this passage. But I think in this passage, Jesus is doing something much larger than simply talking to us about anger. And to see that, we need to go back briefly to our passage we were on last week. If you were here, you remember verse 20 in this chapter where Jesus says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in some way, our righteousness, if we want to get into the kingdom of heaven, it needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day. And I would really like to say, well, Jesus is talking about his imputed righteousness given to us by faith alone but I don't think that's actually what Jesus is talking about. I think you could connect it in some ways, but it's not simply that. So what is it? In what way does our righteousness need to, ex- need to exceed that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, we talked about it this week, last week, but the Pharisees, they were doing something to the law. They didn't understand exactly what to do with the Old Testament and specifically the Mosaic law. So they began to be mostly concerned with their external appearance. They began to mostly be concerned on, the fa- on whether or not they were accomplishing the law. And if you've read the law, the law is really hard to accomplish. <laughs> so they would have to add all these caveats to make the law accomplishable, to make it manageable and to make themselves feel better about themselves. But the problem is, in, in adding to the law, they were actually minimizing the law, not understanding that the law exists not so that we can feel better about our sin, but so that we can see our sin all the more clearly. Charles Spurgeon, who Matt quoted earlier, has another great quote. He says, The law is like a mirror that can show you how dirty your face is, but just try washing your face in it. That was something akin to the way the Pharisees were misunderstanding the law. And Jesus' indictment on them was that, yes, you, you look great on the outside, but your hearts are horrible. On the inside, you have hearts full of jealousy and lust and deceit and anger. 
So the way that someone's righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, it has to do with the heart. It has to do with our core motivations. And and this is what Jesus is wanting to get at. And to some extent, he does this over the whole course of the rest of the chapter. But in our passage this morning, he does this specifically through the sixth commandment. All right, that's why we, we read the catechisms on the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. All right, so I am not in the teenage years of child rearing yet. I know some of you uh, are in those years. Some of you have made it through those years. And I could imagine that there was a day where you saw something going on in the heart of your teenager and you wanted to speak into it. You, you leaned into the issue and the response was, geez, dad, it's not like I killed somebody. So what was your, your teenager doing at that moment? Trying to set the bar really low <laughs> on the external so that they could justify what's going on on the inside. Okay, yes, technically you have not killed somebody, but we still have to deal with this issue of you not coming home on your curfew time or or this issue of you not making grades or this issue of you just being horrible to your sister. Yes, nobody's died, but that doesn't make anything better. And, And I think this gets to the heart of Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees here because they're, they're saying, yes, nobody Nobody died. We haven't murdered anybody, so we're good. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Yes, I agree. Most of you have not killed somebody, but you have murder on your hearts. That's the problem. And so in this passage, Jesus is wanting to show the Pharisees the true state of their hearts. And so what I want to do with this passage is just look at two things. So we've gone from three points to two. That's, that's progress, right? Two points. How we can see the true state of our heart, and then secondly, how we can deal with the true state of our heart. That's what this passage is about. So first, how can we see the true state of our heart? Jesus is saying we see the true state of our heart through anger, insults, and dismissal. Anger, insults, and dismissal. And we see this in verse 22. Chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus says, you have heard it said... So heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, there's the first one, with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, second one, his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool, that's the dismissal, will be liable to the hell of fire. All right, before I unpack those three things, we have to answer a more important question that we answered last week, but it's so important that in case you weren't here, I have to revisit it just for a second. Jesus is doing something with the law. What is he doing? Is he coming in here and saying, well, you, you know, the law said this, but I'm telling you this. Or is he saying the Old Testament said this, but the new covenant that I'm ushering in, it says something completely different. Okay, that's not at all what Jesus is doing. Last week we saw Jesus doesn't, he doesn't change one iota, one dot. In your King James, it says one jot or tittle of the law. He's not changing anything. And you can, you can see it by the way he's introducing what was taught. So if you, if you know your scriptures, you remember when, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, how did he respond? How did he, how did he fight Satan? with scripture. And how did he precede every scripture that he stated? It is written. It is written. Jesus has a very high view of scripture and specifically specifically the law. But what does he say here? He doesn't say it was written. What does he say? 
you have heard it said. Okay, so Jesus knows they're changing the law. They're adding to the law. So he's not saying it's written. He's saying, you've heard this thing said about the law. Now I've come to tell you what the law really says. That's what Jesus is doing. And the Pharisees, when it comes to the sixth commandment, they tried to make it simply about murder. You know, one, one pastor that I listened to said, uh, says, like a factory, if you work in a factory, accidents are a big deal. So you might walk into a factory and see, see a sign that says 100 days accident free. These Pharisees are, are waving this flag that says one whole lifetime murder free. Jesus is saying that that's not right. Okay, you, you may not have committed the act of murder, but the seeds of murder are in every one of your hearts. You know, it's like, maybe like an acorn of an oak tree. Have you ever, have you ever thought about it? You hold an oak acorn and the entire oak tree is in there. That's crazy. The whole oak tree is in that tiny seed. And the reason it's not an entire oak tree is because it has not been in the proper environment and been uh, and had enough time to turn into a full oak tree. But all the seeds, all the parts of an oak tree are in that seed. And in the same way, all the parts of murder are in the Pharisees' hearts and all of ours. So what are the parts of that seed of murder in their hearts and ours? This is where we get to anger, insults, and dismissal. So first, let's, let's look at anger. So that one of my favorite pastors is a guy named Kevin DeYoung, and he does a really good job of arguing that anger could be the most dismissed shortcoming in, in our society. You know, it's like all these other things we can be held responsible for, but anger, I, I don't know. I just don't know if I can be held responsible for what happens when, when anger hits me. And we have these euphemisms to feel better about anger. We, we say things like, I just lost my temper. It, it was there, it got lost. I mean, I, what can I do? How can I be held accountable for what happens? It's lost. There are th- you know, euphemisms like, I was just blowing off some steam. And, you know, that, that phrase comes from the, the days of steam engines where they had to let steam out or it would literally explode, okay? So that, that begins to make anger almost sound necessary. <laughs> you know, we might have, there are more modern versions of that, things like, I was just venting. You know, we think, wow, I'm glad she vented or something really bad would have happened. And then my favorite is, he just pushed my buttons. <laughs> I've got these buttons that... I can be held accountable for anything up until one of those buttons gets pushed. And the more children I have, the more buttons I grow. And I just can't be held accountable. And the idea that comes from these type of euphemisms is, yes, I can be held accountable for murder. But anger, that's just out of my control. But anger is a big deal. In at Grace Bible Church, the church I come to you from, uh, I think the average age of that church for most of my years there was about 13 and a half. <laughs> so I would do a lot of premarital counseling, a lot of weddings, never did one funeral, but a whole lot of premarital counseling. And I would see couples with, you know, I could see all kinds of bumps ahead of them in their road of marriage. You know, you have, you have couples where the girl has never even heard of a budget. <laughs> you know, the guy has no real viable source of income on the horizon. <laughs> she wants six kids. He wants one kid. He wants to live in the city. She wants to live in the country. And I know these are going to be problems, but I also know we all have those bumps ahead of us. We'll 
try and give them the tools to work it out because the whole point of premarital counseling is all these issues, they're cute before you get married. After you get married, they become real problems. But there are some issues where I have to say, all right, we kind of need to hit pause here, okay? These aren't just cute garden variety issues anymore. We've come to something serious and anger is one of those issues because nothing will drive someone towards isolation in their relationships like anger will. So how do we define this thing called anger? I'm gonna define anger as ill will towards someone or something that stands in between you and the thing that you want, all right? So maybe it's ill will towards the person who got your job or the guy who got your girl. Or maybe it's ill will towards the person who cut you off and they stand now in between you and the extra five seconds that you just lost on your way to work. It would would be true for revenge too, right? This person, as long as they're here, as long as they're happy, I can never be happy myself. I can never be content. That's on the other side of that person. So anger is ill will towards someone or something that stands between us and what we really want. And so we can see what's happening here. When we're angry, There's something that stands between us and our hopes, us and the way we want to be seen, us and the thing that we want to have. And in our anger, we're saying at some level, I wish you weren't there. And so what happens when the sentiment of I wish you weren't there grows into its full manifestation? You physically make it to where they are not there anymore. Murder. So you can see why Jesus is saying anger is a a way that we see the the seeds of murder in our own hearts. So maybe we can think about it like the Titanic, all right? So I wasn't on the Titanic, but my understanding is that the moment it hit that iceberg, what happened? Nothing, nothing happened that moment. So it would be very reasonable for somebody to think, well, we're not sunk, so I guess we're okay. Not realizing that, the hole is in the hole, the water is rushing in, and their danger is imminent. And Jesus is saying, anger is the hole, hole, the hole in your hull. And that's why he says anybody who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So anger is the first way that we see the seed of murder in our hearts. The second one is insults. Jesus says whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Okay, now I... I don't think that Jesus is giving us the scale of offenses here, okay? I just think he's wanting to say the same thing from three slightly different angles. And so what he's saying here is you see in the way that you insult people the seed of murder in your heart. And because of that, the penalty is that you will go to the council. He's referring to the, the, the Sanhedrin here. So you can think maybe their version of the Supreme Court. This is serious. There's a serious penalty because of this insulting And you know, it'd be easy for me to read this and think, I mean, what's so big about an insult? (laughs) You know, because insults, there are a variety of kinds of insults. I mean, it could be angry insults, but it could just be, you can insult somebody without really being angry at them. So why is it so bad? Well, I think to answer this, we need to answer the question, why is murder bad? We've been given permission to kill plants and to kill animals, to eat them. What makes people different? Why can we not kill people? And the answer is because people are different than everything else. People are made 
somehow uniquely into the image of God. We reflect something of such magnitude that it is a grave offense to take down an image bearer. And this is why you see in Genesis, 6, Genesis 9, verse 6, Moses writes, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. And so when we attack an image bearer, when we insult an image bearer, it's an, an assault against God. It, it doesn't matter if we it doesn't matter if we say it to their face or behind their back, it's the same. It doesn't matter if we know the person or we don't. I mean, I think, it, you know, if we insult our coworker to their face, it's no different than insulting the senator that we've never met before. In every case, this insult is showing that there's a seed here because of the willingness that we have not, let me, let me clarify, not to constructively critique somebody, all right? There's a healthy place for that, but to actively insult them to not hold them with the honor that, that is due an image bearer of God. And I will show you, tell you, one way that I saw this seed in my heart this week. So somebody, a friend of mine, sent me a video from a very prominent Christian institution, and there was a man leading some music at this Christian, Christian institution. And it was, I'm sorry to say, really, really bad. It was, it was like an SNL skit. I, it, was, it, was, it was just really poorly done. Um, and do you know what your pastor did? Copy, paste, sin. Copy, paste, sin. Copy, paste, sin. To at least half a dozen of my friends. To look at how bad this is. Can you believe this is happening? And what was I doing in that moment? I mean, that, that poor guy, he was probably doing the best he knew how. You know, I wasn't giving any constructive criticism. I was insulting him. I was tearing him down, probably at some deep core level to feel better about my own self. But this is an image bearer of God. And I'm making fun of him and I'm insulting him. But you're stuck with me for now. So we see the seed of murder and our anger and our insults and then finally in our dismissals. And this one I think is a little harder to see so I want you to, but to me it's really clear so I want you to, to look at verse 22. Jesus says, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. So this, this Greek word fool, it comes from the word moros. Can, can, you, can you think of what word might have come from the Greek word moros? Moron, right, okay? You don't need to know Greek to understand what this word means. And so in, in their context, this would have been like the last card in the deck of insults. You moros, you fool. I mean, you think about all the things that Proverbs says about fools. This would have been the final card. And I, you know, I know if you're on the playground or the construction site today, fool is probably at the top of our deck of cards of insults. We have, we, now we have things that are much worse or we think are much worse. But when we get to the bottom of our deck of card of insults, whatever our you know, canon of insults may be, what are we doing when we get to the very bottom? We are dismissing the very value of that human being. So in Jesus' context, when somebody says, you moron, you fool, they're saying you have no value. We're dismissing the value altogether. It is, I think, the most significant way probably in the ancient Near East Jewish culture that you could insult somebody. 
And when you dismiss someone's value, you're dismissing their imago Dei and the full manifestation of dismissing the value of a person is going to be murder. And I could point to a lot of different places where we see this. You dismiss the value of somebody, you dismiss the life of somebody. We could look at all kinds of slavery and the genocide in Rwanda of the, of the Tutsi people. But I wanna try to bring it a little bit closer to our home today. In 2017, CBS ran a, a, an article where Iceland was boasting that they had successfully eliminated Down syndrome from their culture. And do you know how they did this? By killing all the babies who had Down syndrome. So what they had done is they had dismissed the value of a type of person. And and once you dismiss their value, the logical set of events is that it will lead to the murder of that person. And this is not simply an Icelandic problem. This is a global problem. When we dismiss the value of somebody, we show that we have the seeds of murder in our hearts. And I can imagine two types of pushback at this point, all right? First, I think there's a group of you who would say something like, all right, Jim, I, I, I see that if you say you fool, you're liable to the hell of fire. But what about the writers of Proverbs? They seem to talk about fools a lot. And my answer to you would be that there's a, there's a whole different heart behind the way that fool is being addressed in these contexts. In Proverbs, this is God telling us characteristics of foolishness, correctly labeling people as such when they need to be labeled that. But what Jesus is talking about is using a term because we don't like what we see. We don't like the person, so we want to think of the worst way that we can attack the character of this person, and so we're just throwing that term on them. So it's a very different use of the word fool. Second pushback that I could imagine. But Jim, didn't Jesus get angry? Didn't he go into the temple and turn over the tables? And didn't he use the same word fool? Yes, and yes. But there's a difference between good anger and bad anger. All right, I know a lot about bad anger. I don't know that I've ever experienced much of this thing called good anger, but I know that it exists. You know, the, the King James called it, I think, righteous indig- indig- indignation. That's a big word. So there is something called righteous anger that it's okay to have. That's what Jesus had. And so how do we know if our anger is this righteous anger or if it's this bad anger? Well, I, I'm going to steal uh, from Kevin DeYoung five tests, all right? Five tests that can help us Maybe decide if the anger that we're experiencing, is it, is it good anger, is it bad anger? And if you fail any one of these five things, it's not good. You can't just get like, well, it was only two out of five, so maybe I'm okay. No, this is, you've got to be zero out of five for your anger to be okay. So test one, is your anger without cause? Is it without cause? If you, um, and if you have a paper Bible, I know that, that sounds so foreign to some of you, but if you have a paper Bible, you, you have a footnote in there likely, and it says, whoever's angry, footnote, you look down, without cause. And most scholars agree that, that that phrase without cause, it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, but they also agree that likely someone later added that phrase uh, to, be, to try and communicate what they thought was the heart behind this kind of anger, because they would have known there's good anger and there's bad anger, and so they decided to insert without cause. 
then I think there's some merit to, to saying it, it does our anger have cause? Can we say why we're angry or are we just angry? Secondly, is your anger proportionate to your offenses? All right, are, are, do we have a, a short fuse and a big bomb? You know, are we, are we the person throwing things at our TV set when our sports team doesn't perform the way that we want it to? That would be a good example of a, a short fuse and a big bomb. And, you know, anger, anger is actually what's called a secondary emotion. Okay, it's not a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion that's used to cover over a primary emotion like fear or guilt or shame. And so sometimes when we have a short fuse and a big bomb, we, we don't understand the deeper emotions that we're covering over. And that makes it not good anger. Thirdly, is your anger out of your control? Do you have control over your anger or not? Ephesians 4.27 says that if we're angry in, in the bad kind of way, then, then Satan gets a foothold in our life. We, Angela and I commonly say to our kids, all right, calm down, calm down. Who is in control right now? Is it you or is it anger? And my favorite response would be, angry's in charge. We, angry doesn't need to be in charge. We need you in charge. Are you in control of your anger? Fourth test, does your anger have any relation to the holiness of God or the truth of the gospel? This is, this is, this, we see an example of this good anger in Mark 3, 5, when Jesus is angry over people's unwillingness to see him for who he is. All right, that, that's good anger. When you're angry with your coworker, I'm guessing it's not usually over the holiness of God and the truth of the gospel. <laughs> you're angry at your coworker because in some way they stand in between you and the goals you want, you and the productivity you want, you and the efficiency that you want. Is our anger in any way connected to the holiness of God and the truth of the gospel? And then fifthly, lastly, anger is bad when it festers. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I don't, I don't think that means necessarily if, if you get angry at 5.30, you need to make sure it's dealt with by the time the sun goes down. The principle there is don't let it fester. Because sometimes we're angry. We wanna, we wanna hold on to that anger. We enjoy being angry at some level because we think that our anger is punishing in some way the object of our anger. But the truth is when we're angry and we hold on to it and we let it fester, the only people we're punishing is ourselves and the people closest to us. To us. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So if your anger doesn't meet those five tests, it's not what we call righteous anger. So we see the seed of murder in our hearts through anger, insults, and dismissal. The logical question is, what, what do I do about it? <laughs> Hopefully we all see that those seeds are in our hearts. It's not just the Pharisees. The Pharisees' problem is they didn't see it. All right, hopefully we see it and now we can hear what Jesus has to say about how we deal with it. Jesus says the cure to murder in our hearts is reconciliation in our relationships. That's what Jesus says. And most people don't realize these, these passages go together the way they do. But Jesus is saying the cure to the, the hardness of your heart, the murder seed in your heart is reconciliation. That's the opposite of wanting to kill somebody. It's wanting to reconcile with them. And, and you have a horizontal aspect to this reconciliation. So that would be between us and each other. But then there's, there's a vertical piece of this reconciliation too. So I'm gonna take them separately because... Jesus addresses the horizontal first. I want to look at the horizontal first. 
And we see that this, rec- this horizontal reconciliation between us, it is necessary and it is urgent, all right? First, we see that it's necessary in verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. All right, so remember that Jesus is speaking to Galileans here. He's in Galilee. So he's saying, if you're all the way over in Jerusalem and you have purchased your sacrifice, you've come to the altar, but then you remember that somebody has something against you. Not even that you have something against them. He's raising the bar more. They might have something against you. I would rather you drop your sacrifice, walk back to Galilee, reconcile with them before you come back here and try and sacrifice to me. I mean, this is, this is kind of extreme. <laughs> but I think Jesus wants, he wants it to sound extreme because he wants us to see the true state of our hearts. So how does reconciliation affect our hearts? Why is that so important? Well, as the beneficiary (laughs) to this kind of teaching, I can tell you from personal experience, I have wronged people and had them come and reconcile with me and it affects my heart. So here's, here's one example. When Angela and I were newly married, we lived in Europe and, uh, I stranded us on an island. Yeah, if I had a nickel for every time that happened. Um, so we, we were going from our home to a conference and I was trying to save money. So we used a, a low budget airline called Ryanair. I don't know if you're familiar with Ryanair, but it makes Allegiant look really upscale. <laughs> and everybody's really thankful when those wheels come down, no problem. And so because it's a low budget airline, you have to, you have to do each leg. Like I have to do this book, this leg, and then this leg separately. It's not all done together like Delta or even Travelocity would do. And so we, we arrive in England for our layover on, on this town called Bristol. And so we land at 11 a.m. and our next leg is at 7 p.m. And because it's a low budget airline, you have to get your bags, go outside of security and then recheck for your next leg. And so we were rechecking at around noon and the lady looks at us and said, I'm sorry, your flight left like four hours ago. Our eyes are just like this big. What do you mean? My flight is clearly at 7 p.m. She said, no, that's 7 (laughs) a.m. I'd forgotten that they operate on military time because they're idiots. But (laughs) sorry, kidding, kidding. I want things to be my way. So here I am at the front desk and and there's no more budget airlines out for like days or weeks. I don't remember exactly. It was a long time. And the normal airlines are like thousands of dollars to get back to the continent that we lived on. And I've got a credit card with a $400 max. (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, we are completely stranded at this point. And Angela had every right, mainly because of my pattern of lack of attention to detail, to shame me in that moment, to to nag me in that moment. But instead her heart was one of reconciliation and she looked at me and she said, you know what? I saw a Subway Sandwiches restaurant down that, down that corridor there. We hadn't seen one of those in a year. Why don't I go get you a sandwich as you figure this out? <laughs> and in that moment, because her posture was that of reconciliation and not murder, 
Like my heart was affected. I turned to the person, I said, give her first class, whatever it takes, I'll swim. (laughs) When we pursue reconciliation, especially when we're not the party at fault, it changes our hearts. It changed my heart. I know it helped change her heart. (laughs) It helped prepare her for the next 24 hours of our life. (laughs) But this is what Jesus is saying. That is being more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes. It's when our heart isn't toward murder, but reconciliation. So that's the, the horizontal piece. And we have to see really clearly that it is so necessary that Jesus is saying, I would rather you reconcile than have good church attendance. Because you had these Pharisees, they, they were nailing it on church attendance but they had hostility in their hearts. They did not care to reconcile their relationships. Now, I'm hoping that we can all do both, (laughs) keep coming to church and reconcile, but it is that important. So we see that it's necessary, and then secondly, we see that it's urgent, verse 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's easy to think I'll reconcile on my own terms. You know, when I'm done being angry, when I want to reconcile, I'm gonna let them sweat it out a little bit. But we can't expect the opportunity to reconcile to always be there. If, if we don't have mercy on our heart now, why would we think that we would in a week, in a month, in a year? Because we saw like three weeks ago that mercy, that's a kingdom ethic. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So it's necessary and it's urgent that we reconcile horizontally. But I know some people hear this And you might think, yeah, but Jim, you have no idea what that person has done to me. You have no idea the way they've wronged me. And there might be others of you who would hear that and say, I I hear that, but you have no idea how much I've messed up. Reconciliation is impossible. I couldn't even ask for it. I have messed up that bad. And if that's you, the fuel to our horizontal Reconciliation, it is this vertical reconciliation. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. I hadn't until some years back. But in Luke, Jesus says the exact same phrase that we just read. But it's not in the context of horizontal relationships like it is in our passage. It's in the context of a vertical relationship. Almost the same exact phrase, but it's talking about our relationship with God. Jesus says, and why? Do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So do you see what's going on here? All of us at our birth, we are predisposed to be angry against God. God stands in between us as we perceive it, but between us and what we want with our lives, between us and what we want to do, between us and the way we thought our life should go, between us and the relationships that we want, the job that we want. 
So the, the seed of murder is in our heart against God because all of us have wished at some point or another, whether we're conscious of the way we're saying it or not, that we wish God wasn't there. We wish we could run every part of our life. But it's not just a seed of murder that we have in our heart toward God. It is the very act because it is that seed that caused Jesus Christ to go to the cross and die in our place. And so what we see is that God has forgiven us. We had murder against him and he forgave us. He pursued us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's only deeply understanding the vertical reconciliation that we're ever gonna be able to really respond to the hard types of horizontal reconciliation. So very practically, what does that look like? I know there's one camp of you, you're thinking, you don't understand how bad I've messed up. I can't possibly ask for reconciliation. And I, and I think what most of us in that moment would be thinking is I don't want to risk the kind of rejection that I think I'm going to get. But what we hear in the gospel in the vertical reconciliation is that we are accepted where it matters the most no matter what we've done. And because we can take comfort in that, we're going to risk the rejection of reconciliation when it's our fault. And then the other side of us you don't understand what that person has done to me. And I'm, I'm not saying that you and that person have to be all, you know, chummy and hanging out every day. But what I am saying, if you're wrestling with that kind of unforgiveness and the reconciliation with what someone has done to you, the vertical reconciliation is still the, the answer. Because there's no way that you have been wronged that exceeds how we have wronged our holy and perfect God. Yet we've been forgiven. So the more we lean into that forgiveness, the more we understand that forgiveness, that creates this well from which we are able to draw bucket after bucket of forgiveness in the relationships around us. That doesn't mean that it's gonna be easy, but it means that when we believe in Jesus Christ and we have been forgiven, that our capacity for reconciliation is exponentially increased. It's the fuel. And I know anger isn't something that you can just turn off. You know, I learned early on in marriage to, to stop saying things like, just stop being angry. <laughs> you can't just stop it all the time. But what Jesus is saying He's helping us to understand where it comes from and that we can deal with it both in this life and ultimately in the next. And he's telling us that the, the, key, the key to understanding the seed of murder in our heart is simply to, to admit that we're murderers. We admit it. That's the Christian call. Admit that you're murderers. Admit that we have the seed. That's what softens hearts. That's what fosters reconciliation between our God and our families, our friends. And it's those kind of soft hearts. It's fertile ground for our process of being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. To live according to the kingdom values and ethics that Jesus is espousing. And whatever our circumstances are, to truly 
being joyful and content in every circumstance. So I want to finish by praying just for that. (laughs) That this would become clearer and that we would be more excited about the things that Jesus is saying both to the Pharisees and to us. Let's pray. God, every one of us comes to you with seed, the seed of murder in our heart. We know it, most of us acknowledge it, and we pray that you would do a work of reconciliation in us, that you would continue to help us to see the, cl- the seed more clearly, that you would soften our hearts, and in so doing, that we would be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, not because of our actions, but because of the work you're doing in our hearts. And we pray that this work would be contagious, that people would be drawn to us, that we would have opportunities because of what you're doing in us to have to explain to loads of people around us why it is that we have this joy. We pray to be great in the kingdom, not because of any moral superiority, but because of a deep love and devotion to your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask this in his name. Amen.